Oh, like, do you want to do, you want to do the introduction? I know that you love doing them so much. Uh, should I do it in my in my Dylan voice? Oh God, no! Hey. Well, <laughs> fuck! Hey, oh God, please stop! Moon's I'm not even gonna do mine. I can't. Podcast. Oh God! Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, it. that's all I got. <laughs> 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 I, I I suppose I should say this for like the actual show, but you know something crazy that I learned. Mm. So Bob Dylan's son Jesse is a film director of Summer Renown. So the first film we directed his feature directorial debut was a little film called How High, <laughs> <laughs> and then he uh, graduated from that uh, just amazing work to uh, <laughs> American Wedding. Mm-hmm. The uh, I think this is. Third American Pie film? Yes. Yeah. The third one. You've never seen it. The best one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the most Dylan-esque of the American Pie films. I've only seen a uh, part of American Reunion, which is like the fourth one. That's the only exposure I've had to the American Pie franchise at all. Uh, and then uh, his final film was made in 2005. A little movie that I've seen three or four times called Kicking and Screaming with Will Ferrell. Not the Noah Bombach one. No, no. Where Will Ferrell plays the coach of a uh, children's soccer team. And it is terrible. Has his career stalled <laughs> since then? Yes, it has. Welcome to Project A+. My name is Hugh, and your name is... Oh, it's Hunter. How's it going? Not bad. Not bad. Uh, so, as always, we'll be talking about things that can be considered cinema and this is perhaps one of the episodes in which we push that definition as far as it can go it's very limited because uh hugh i think i think you should introduce this topic because it it really comes from you i have no interest in the person we're talking about today uh which is reinforced uh which was reinforced by the two films that we watched (laughs) yeah so we'll be looking at the some of the cinematic output of acclaimed singer-songwriter bob dylan uh, in fact, most of the cinematic output, because uh, I watched four of his works, or works related to him in some fashion, whereas uh, you only had to watch two, which will be the main focus of the podcast. Yeah. Had to be the um, operative phrase in that sentence. So the two films we'll mainly be focusing on this week will be Don't Look Back from 1965, the formative D.A. Pennybacker documentary uh and then we will be talking about the later work the 2003 film directed by larry charles co-written by dylan and larry charles called masked and anonymous this is in fact the first directorial effort of larry charles so hugh uh in addition to those two films you because you are a bob dylan superfan will also be discussing two more of his directorial efforts Yes, so the companion piece to Don't Look Back, which is Eat the Document, also um, a DA Pennybacker project to some extent, although this one is helmed by Dylan himself. DA Pennybacker shot it, so it was kind of a follow-up to Don't Look Back, and he did also work on an edit of it, and then Bob wasn't happy with that, um, so he took over the edit and uh, did some unique things with it. And I'll also be looking at... uh, 
Dylan's first attempt at a fiction film uh, in which he's creatively involved. Like he was in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And he, he did the soundtrack for that too, if I remember. He did, Knocking on Heaven's Door. And uh, that film is uh, Ronaldo and Clara, which is, like, which is Bob Dylan's like four hour 1978 parent homage to L'Enfant du Paradis. Could you do that again? I said the Infants of Paradise in French. Oh, what, wait, what I mean the children. Of oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yes, <laughs> you're right. You're right. Yeah, the infants. Uh, I think it means in French, uh, les enfants. Les enfants. <laughs> paradis. Paradis. I think that's what the, it translates like as from French. Is that right? Paradis. 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 Okay. And wait, uh, now how Dylan would say it. It's my favorite film. Yeah, uh, that's some great stuff, man. Don't look back, you crazy journalist man. You've got twelve fingers and a face like a bottle of jam. Burst into my dressing room with questions so sincere But ain't nobody gonna answer your questions around here But say, have you got any class A Don't look back, you crazy journalist man Oh no So I'll give some, I'll give some uh, context Don't Look Back focuses on a 1965 tour that Bob Dylan did in England and it captures him at a time shortly after he had released uh, the record Bring It All Back Home, which features his first uh, electric guitar music. So when Dylan went electric and alienated his folky fans who thought he was selling out to mainstream. And you get some of that in this film in which uh, some of his fans confront him about the fact that he has turned his back on folk as, as, as they perceive it. Really? And embraced this type of music. Yeah. I, I missed that entirely. <laughs> okay, well, that, 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 so he talks to some young girls who, who, who mentioned that. Oh, okay. I remember talking to the young girls. It, it's not like a major... It's not no, like... no, no, no. It's not like a major thing of this particular film because he's still performing as one person in his guitar. And it hadn't got, gotten quite as far as... Because he did like a trilogy of electric records, right? Yeah, so he would have released one of them at this point. Okay, so he hadn't quite quite solidified that style. And that record is only half electric. Like, one side of the LP is electric with a band, and the other side is mostly just him solo with a guitar. Gotcha. He would later tour England with a band. In fact, the band, then called The Hawks, as his backing group. Um, And that is when there's the famous moment in which someone in the crowd yelled out Judas because he'd betrayed the you know, what he used to stand for in that guy's opinion. That's pretty funny. Um, so this has a little bit of that. That's a little bit of the context in which in the transition he's going for. It's it's sort of subtle, but yeah, you could see it in some of the editing choices, I'd say. 
but it, it captures this particular creative period in in Dylan's life, which is probably his most fertile period of his entire career. Bring it all back home through to Blonde, Blonde on Blonde. Besides his early uh, 2000s where he wrote and directed, or wrote uh, Mass Anonymous. His late career re- renaissance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria's Secret ads and Mass Anonymous. This is quite an important documentary, cinematically speaking, even if you take away the subject. Um, and you'll, you'll probably have some stuff to say about the fact that your lack of interest in the subject perhaps put you off enjoying this film. Yeah. But I think it, it, if you look at it just as a piece of work, the fact that he eschews any form of title card context or narration to set things up and really just goes about capturing these scenes on camera and letting it speak for itself was quite an influential style to choose back in, in 1967. I'm sure there's some prior works in the, in the documentary medium uh, that probably did the same thing, but it's a significant yeah, it's important. milestone. Yeah. Uh, I, to be honest, I found it really insufferable. The, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a big like fan of cinema verite. It's one of those things that's like influential, but it has like a influence that I'm not especially interested in. You know what I mean? <laughs> Like, I can recognize its importance, but I don't really personally enjoy a lot of the films that emerge from the tradition that it established. I think it's a style that can go horribly wrong in, in many cases. Like, I've seen terrible films in a similar style. Um, and obviously it helps me personally to enjoy something like this because I have a vested interest in Bob Dylan's work. So, I mean, maybe we should start there. Just how long have you been a Dylan fan for? I've been a fan probably since I was, uh, you know, maybe like 15 or something. Uh, it wasn't initially something I could get my head around. I think he's to some extent an acquired taste. Most people's first impression is like, oh, he can't, he's got a horrible voice and he can't really play harmonica and stuff like that. You know, I don't, I don't mind his voice. It's a, it's not like, a, it's not like, um, polish, but it sounds correct for the songs that he sings, I guess. That's not the part of him I don't like. It. It's not that clear. He's really good at phrasing and using his voice to his advantage through all its developments. Um, so now his voice is basically shot to death, essentially, uh, probably through smoking. But he, he still knows how to use it effectively and use it to his advantage. So I really like his current performances on record of his last uh, handful of albums. Have you seen him live? Yeah, I've seen him live once. In Australia, or yeah, in Australia, when he came down here. So this was sort of represented sort of like holy grail for you then, then in a sense. Yeah, well, to me, it's inherently enjoyable watching Dylan just sit at a typewriter. So that could have been the whole film for me, and I would have enjoyed it. Are you going to defend Bastard? I'm going to be so angry at you. <laughs> we'll get to that. Let's let's not bury the lead. But I think that like aside from just me enjoying watching Dylan like in a room. There's other interesting parts of, of this film. And I do like the contrast between the touring sort of bohemian American hip New York musician and the decorum of British respectability, uh, especially in like scenes in which this uh, upper class British lady introduces herself to Dylan and she has her three sons standing behind her. 
<laughs> looking like these. <laughs> it's just like, it's one of the things that's like, you haven't listened to this guy's music where he's like, oh yes, you're a wonderful influence on the youth. And like, she invites him to stay in her country mansion next time he, he comes to the country. <laughs> it's pretty funny. And then just standing gormlessly behind, unable to believe what's going on. Her two idiot sons. <laughs> And there's other interesting stuff, like the the power dynamics of like the business negotiations with Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman, who's like a caricature of a manager, really. <laughs> yeah, kind of. This is one of those films that I think is more interesting to think about and talk about in retrospect. While, uh, while I was watching it, I thought it was completely insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> and then, except for the concert footage, which is like fine. Yeah. I think by virtue of the style in which it's really just capturing things as they unfold in a scene and there's just like a few set pieces as yeah. it were but i've seen i've seen documentaries like that where i think it's it works for me. Like, have you seen um harlan county usa no it's sort of a similar style but i find it to be way more engaging i guess but what's the what's that focusing on like what's the subject uh on? a um union strike among coal miners in the middle of West Virginia. So maybe I find that more interesting than... Yeah, well, that's a very different thing because it's telling a story. Like, the, 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 the subject matter of the documentary is a story and it's got these, you know, figures in it. Yeah, but it's not... It's like the story's, like, pre... Uh, like she was, like, shooting it when it was happening. Like it wasn't, like, I'm going to go and interview people after the fact and see what, like, the causes and stuff of the strike were. It was, like, you know, she went to... Uh, West Virginia and like and sort of documented it while it was unfolding, you know. But again, it's still it's still the fact that there there was this interesting thing happened and she was lucky enough to capture it. Yeah, sure. Versus this film where nothing interesting happens. Well, <laughs> sorry, that was which mean. is obviously a matter of of uh, perspective, but it's it's certainly not a huge like story that happened. There's there's nothing significant really that occurs. I don't even I don't even need like uh, a big story. I just didn't find like the individual scenes themselves to be that engaging. Mm. I just thought it was really I don't know like one of the stuff was just like okay I get it. Dylan doesn't like the press. He's sort <laughs> of inscrutable. All right, great. But you have, you found him actually off putting, yeah. Yeah, I thought he was really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the bit at the end where he's like. Oh, I feel like I actually... I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm just going to put that out there. I'm not going to do another Dylan impression. It's like, I feel like something really happened tonight. It's like, God, I hate this. <laughs> I find it to be annoying with a lot of artists, but when they don't like doing press interviews, like even artists I really like, like David Lynch, uh, I think it's really annoying when they're just like, eh, I don't know, I'm not going to talk about my work. I kind of actually side with both Bob Dylan and David Lynch to a way lesser extent with someone like Lou Reed who just comes across like a real asshole, honestly. Yeah. But I think with, certainly with Lynch, his whole philosophy is that it dies if he if he tries to reduce it to a couple of sound bites, if he tries to put it into words, what he's trying to do. There's a very subconscious thing about his style that uh, resists that kind of pat explanation. And I can, I can sympathize with him not wanting to you know, commit to that. Sure, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't mean like, you know, but I just was used more way to talk about like, not necessarily like interpretations, but just like his working methods. Or anything, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't, I, I'm not like, I don't, I'm not like someone who's like, oh man, the only way to read these work is if the author like gives you an instruction booklet, like how to do it. But like, 
I don't know, man. Just like talk about what it was like, like working with these actors and stuff. Like, yeah, I kind of agree with you to an extent because I always, I, I watch some of these confrontations with the press that various artists, you know, I, I like or not have had. Uh, and I always think if I was in that position, you know, I'd want to treat the person doing the interview as, you know, someone who's got a job to do, who's yeah. also a human being, and we can have some sort of conversation and be nice uh, to one another. Maybe we should return to this conversation a little bit later. With that. Well, it does come up again in Marston and Anonymous, yeah. Yeah, to, to a larger extent, actually, <laughs> I think. <laughs> But, like, nothing happens in this movie. He just goes on some tornadoes and then, I don't know. Yeah, but I, that's kind of what I like about it. Yeah, yeah. So this will kind of thread throughout the various things that we talk about uh, in this podcast and the various films. But Dylan's always played with his persona um, and his relationship with the public and the press. Um, when he was first starting and no one really knew much about his background, he would tell people, like, he escaped from the circus. It's <laughs> pretty funny. And you just tell random contradictory stories to every press thing. So there's a, there's a precedence to the way he's dealt with the press. Mm. We, you know, it's a part of what he's doing, really. But yeah, sometimes it's it's just a bit dickish, honestly. But it's still entertaining in some cases. I, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's just like how... Uh, like the press is a fraught institution right now, right? Yeah. Like, at this point, it's like, I don't really care if this rock star doesn't like the press. Like, okay, whatever. I should say there is um, some culpability on the side of the journalists. And there is a cumulative effect of being challenged with kind of stupid, inane questions uh, that he was getting. Like, if you read some of the interviews, when people didn't really understand what he was, and especially people who didn't have an affinity for the music at all, like some of the people in this film, um, asking him questions like, are you the voice of the gener- this generation and stuff like that? So you can kind of understand why he, you know, was inclined to nomic responses to these questions. Yeah, sure. But he doesn't always have to be so antagonistic, I guess. I mean, like, there's the scene where he's, like, talking to the Times reporter where he's just, like, attacking this guy like, for no reason. Like, yeah. <laughs> the guy's just like, ah, ah, I don't know. I thought that was just, like, I, that scene was so insufferable to me. There's no truth. There's no reality. <laughs> I, know, I still find that enjoyable to watch. To be honest, a nihilist. But and I, I will say that my favorite part of the, the movie was his like simmering resentment towards Donovan. <laughs> just, just like what? <laughs> like who cares about Donovan? He does uh, compliment him though, like when he's in person with him. Is, is that in the movie? <laughs> yeah, he plays a song, and Dylan says, Hey, that's a good song! Oh, oh yeah, oh, oh, that was him, okay. okay. That was Donovan, yeah. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, the, literally, the only thing I know from Don, of Donovan's is the Hurdy Gurdy Man. I don't like that from Zodiac, so there you go. <laughs> it's a good song. It is a good song. He, Donovan's not bad. Like, he started off as, as a Dylan imitator, uh to a degree and then kind of found a weird uh, psychedelic pop voice and then disappeared what, what do you think about the performances so I, I think it's a good choice to not show the full songs because it except for at the beginning it becomes a yeah w- the beginning is obviously it's the most iconic bit it's the bit that's that's in, that's gone on to be a, a formative example of the music video with Alan Ginsberg in the background oh really yeah he's in the film as well is he? He's the guy who looks like Alan Ginsberg. Oh, thank you. <laughs> He's in Ronaldo and Clara also. Oh, God. I'm really excited to hear about that one. But we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. 
with, with the performances, aside from the Subterranean Homesick Blues opening, I think D.A. Pennybaker makes the correct choice in deciding not to show the full song. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Because it's not so much about this is a document of a concert. And I think, I think as soon as you start showing entire songs, especially some of Dylan's songs, which can be lengthy, it transforms the product into something else a little bit and takes away from it. And I mean, if you're interested, and I, mean, I don't mean you personally, because I know you're not, um, if you just buy like one of those elaborate editions of Don't Look Back, you get the full uh, performances and all the extras. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. But I think, I think they are strikingly shot too. Yeah, the photography is great. But I feel like I, those scenes are like really um, well made. And there's a specific cut that I thought was amazing where it's like it cuts from Dylan um, performing in some, it looks like, I don't know, some part of the rural south or something like that, right? Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't shot that wasn't shot by Penny Baker. That was actually a different um, filmmaker. But it was probably my favorite part of the entire movie where it cuts from that to like him performing just like this huge sort of, I don't know, I don't know if it's like critiquing him necessarily, but uh, as a sort of pushing against like his, his, his this social significance that his songs are achieving in England you know in a way where it's sort of like oh this is what he used to be like this sort of person who came from like localities and was very like in touch with the community and stuff like that to like this like mega star essentially and I kind of wish that the more of the film had like pushed pushed back against that you know what I mean hmm. like I've always just watched a documentary that's like actively a specific like a music documentary that's critical of its subject because it just sounds really fascinating to me, but this doesn't quite do that, unfortunately, for me, <laughs> anyway. So if you, the last thing I'll say about it, if you look at various music documentaries that try and tell a story of, of a particular performer, they're very often terrible. There's 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 some significant exceptions. I, I try to think, of, I, I generally don't watch them just because of their reputation. I've seen so many of them of uh, artists that I like and... The majority are terrible. See, obviously. like, I, um, unlike the majority of other forms of art, I generally do not care about, like, the personal lives and creative processes of musicians that I like. I mean, I guess it's different for you being that you're, like, a musician yourself. So you might want to, like, you know, get some sort of, like, working method and stuff like that. But I just, I don't know. It's never been something that's, like, super interested me at all. Even um, Scorsese's film about Dylan... No Direction Home, I don't think that's entirely successful. There's parts of it that are interesting, but... Mm-hmm. It sounds like a lot of Scorsese's documentaries then. Yeah, exactly. But Don't Look Back, I think, is much, much more interesting than the entirety of No Direction Home. I was going to say... Yeah, I guess I should just, like... If you're not a Dylan fan, I don't really see much value in watching this movie. I, I'm not sure about that, but I can't, I can't speak for someone who isn't a Dylan fan because I've never, like, seen this film in that context. But I think I think people could be intrigued by it. Like I think it has value in, independently of Dylan. I guess I I don't know if it does. To be honest, I don't know if it quite. But it's impossible for you to say. I mean, it's possible for both of us to say, right? Yeah. Because like, I wouldn't say I'm negative towards Dylan, but I just I just thought thought he was kind of annoying. <laughs> so I never like I, I was kind of like hostile going into it, which sort of influenced my opinion. Again, like we, we kind of touched on this off the air, but I wouldn't necessarily show this to someone as an introduction to Dylan, like to get them into Dylan, because I know that the, the way he comes across in some of the scenes can be divisive. Uh, like, a, like a standoffish prick. 
Um, what what would you recommend to get someone to Dylan then? Dylan's music. <laughs> like like what specifically? I'd probably pot- I'd potentially make a like a playlist. Oh okay. Of because there's different eras. Okay. Well, let's say I, I'm gonna listen to one record. If you're gonna listen to one record and you want to know why he's so significant, I suppose. Yeah. I'd probably listen to Highway 61 Revisited. Mm. Okay. But that's like an end-to-end, tight, you know, 45-minute record without a weak track on it, I think. And it will give you an idea of how compelling he can be. And it captures the energy of, of that particular period best, I think. And I do really like records like Blonde on Blonde afterwards, but it's a double record. I wouldn't make someone sit through that. Do you prefer, like, Electric Dylan or... Like, what's your preferred mode? Or do you just have a affinity for all of his stuff? I mean, I like the, some of the previous records, but uh, I, I think he's a far better songwriter once he stopped writing protest songs, unquestionably. So after Don't Look Back was, was something of a success... Um, certainly critically, a subsequent film was arranged, uh, involving DA Pennybacker, but this time Dylan decided to direct it himself. Always a good decision. <laughs> Always a good decision. And the result was, uh, eat the document. I have a question for you. Hmm. Has there ever been another instance of a, like, musician directing his own, like, making of documentary like that? At least to your recollection. It seems like very sort of strange to me. Uh, nothing, no, nothing jumps out necessarily. Usually some hack has just put it together. Like I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure in a lot of cases, the band or the artist has dictated what has ended up in the film and, and curated it. To some Having creative control over it. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of actually directing it, I think it's quite rare. <laughs> Maybe for a good reason. It was commissioned for television, I think. Oh, really? So it was only an hour. Uh, and I think they rejected it when Dylan turned it in. Yeah, so Pennybacker shot it. It's a similar thing of following Dylan around a year later than Don't Look Back. And it's in color. So it's less visually appealing. So it's, it's kind of that grubby 60s color camera because it's a handheld. Oh, that sounds very appealing to me, actually. <laughs> I love how that looks, to be honest. Then you might, maybe you, I don't know. I wonder if you'll enjoy this more or not. I'm not going to watch it. But you'll have to invest 52 minutes of your life. Maybe I'll watch like a little bit just to, but anyway, keep on going. You won't be entertained by it, I don't think, but uh, yeah. But I love like, I love 60 millimeter as an aesthetic. The, it's just the version that's online. It's probably terrible. It probably, it probably hasn't been restored at all. Yeah, it definitely hasn't been restored. So, so it was under Dylan's direction. Um, Pennybacker was shooting most of it. And it's way less coherent than Don't Look Back. Mm -hmm. Um, So it jumps between scenes and locations. You don't really know where you are at any one time. So it kind of effectively maybe captures what it it was like to be a drug-addled rock star being dragged from tour to tour. (laughs) I thought thought Dylan sort of didn't uh, dabble in in the drugs that much. No, he did. He famously turned the Beatles onto pot. Oh, that's funny. Or at least was present when it happened. Um, And there's a scene in Eat That Document, a notorious scene in which uh, he's in a limousine with John Lennon. And Dylan is, like, fucked up. Like, if you didn't like Dylan, you know, antagonizing journalists, but reasonably coherently, right? (laughs) Uh You you definitely won't like him 
on heroin <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe not <laughs> uh because I, mean, I kind of hate john lennon too so john lennon actually comes across like of the footage i've seen of john lennon uh he comes across as even more of an asshole than than bob dylan usually but uh in this in this scene what is it with rock stars what is it with fame that makes people just turn into awful people i mean it makes sense the way you're suddenly treated and that becomes your whole world and you don't really get outside of that yeah, I can imagine it'd poison the best of us, really. But anyway, sure. so like you, for instance, like me, yeah. So they're sitting in the limousine, right? Dylan is is like clearly off his head. John Lennon apparently also was, but the dominant impression is that he's either really unimpressed or really nervous. And in later interviews, he clarified that he was just nervous as hell because it was kind of Dylan's project, and he he didn't really feel comfortable in that scenario there's only a tiny bit of it in eat the document but you can see the whole 12 minutes on youtube separately which i did watch oh my god and yeah it's kind of it's kind of horrible and fascinating at the same time so eat the document is more of a experimental art film than don't look back whether by intent or by inexperience because dylan himself took over the edits <laughs> I love that he edited it. That's so funny. Yeah, it is funny. And and Penny Baker had a funny quote saying, it's not something that you can just learn without any experience. <laughs> but obviously he had someone there. Um, yeah, like actually cutting the film. Doing the work. Yeah. And he, he was just like making, you know, sitting there stoned or something. <laughs> <laughs> Probably doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but I genuinely enjoyed it in that way like it's just a, it's just like it's like a vomit of the film <laughs> the the decisions are enjoyable of what he chooses to focus on it's kind of funny there's not much to say about it like it's it's like it, it's literally like if you took all the rough uh, footage for don't look back and and fed it through like a blender or something <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so do you also want to talk about Renato and Clara because this is also shot around the same time I guess if we're going chronologically yeah might as well Somewhere in a bar or some kind of cafe She said her name was Clara I said okay She said play a song I said how about a film It's four hours long and Hey where you going? The next significant film project he made was Ronaldo and Clara in uh, 1978. Made, made implies like released, right? It was released. Oh, uh, was it? Very briefly. So Ronaldo and Clara uh, is a film... <laughs> Whenever you say that title, it makes me want to laugh. <laughs> it's like the worst title. Ronaldo and Clara is a film made on the back of Dylan's Rolling Thunder Tour, which was a period in his creative high peak of the 70s that followed records like Blood on the Tracks and Desire, uh, in which he would form with a rotating crew of musicians and other artists. And he famously had white face paint on during the performances. So this film is apparently in its full version, it was 232 minutes long. Oh my God. So, you know, a solid four hours, pretty much, more or less. I can't believe whoever released it to theaters. So I think it was, I think the four hour cut did get released in theaters very briefly. It had like a horrific reception and he then made a 
like a, a shorter two hour cut or something of it. But uh, the version that I saw, which was uploaded in installments on YouTube, uh, is close to the full version. Oh my God. So I did sit through the whole thing uh, in a couple of sessions. <laughs> so as I alluded to earlier, apparently it was inspired by the Children of Paradise. The uh, Ni film. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was better than I could ever could have possibly imagined. <laughs> um, so it borrows elements of that, but I I really enjoyed it. It's a terrible mm. film in many respects. <laughs> like, God, in many many respects. <laughs> like it's in it's completely incoherent. Um, whatever story it's trying to tell is buried. And then there's a couple of like strange scenes towards the end of the film. It's going to be a weird analogy. And I feel like you like these movies the same way that I like, like ready player one. Perhaps, perhaps what I kind of like about this film is something that Dylan always does with his persona. You know, there's this strange blurring of the line between reality and myth. And this is a film in which part of it is essentially a concert film. And then part of it is also a documentary of various stuff that happens surrounding this tour. So it's deliberately obfuscated. So mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you don't really know where one thing begins and one thing ends. And not helped by the chaotic editing style Dylan is famous for. Please add, please add a paper about the Dylan edit. Uh, and it also includes stranger sides like... A whole segment uh, of like Vox Pops in Harlem where they talk to African-American people about what they think of the Hurricane Carter imprisonment. So there's a whole chunk of it where it's just like Vox Pops about that and interviews with Reuben Carter for no particular reason. It doesn't really have any relation to the rest of the film except Dylan wrote a song about it. It's really weird. So Ronaldo is played by Bob Dylan. There's another character in the film called Bob Dylan, not played by Bob Dylan. <laughs> oh, God. Which is funny because because threaded throughout the whole film is this uh, this recollection by a guy called David Blue, who was a folk musician from around the same time that Dylan came up in Greenwich Village in New York. And he just talks about his recollection of, of that scene and, and Bob Dylan. And then when they do show someone called Bob Dylan, it's this weird Southern guy. <laughs> Oh God, I'm so, I'm so happy that I did not watch this. So the script is credited to Bob Dylan, but apparently Sam Shepard worked on it as well and appears in the film. That's funny. He's in one of my favorite movies of all time, actually. Which one? The Days of Heaven. Ah, there you go. And uh, Sam Shepard later wrote co-wrote one of Dylan's best songs of the '80s, which is funny. Which song? Brownsville Girl. Mm, okay. Which is a great song about film. And it, obviously the song's more interesting than any film he's ever made. But Sam Shepard? No, 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 no. I'm talking about Bob Dylan. Oh, Bob Dylan. <laughs> oh, okay. It's like, because like Sam Shepard like, wrote Paris, Texas. Like, that's a great film. Speaking of Paris, Texas, not only does Sam Shepard appear in Ronaldo and Clara, but also Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, I mean, this is where they met. And his subplot, like, is nonsensical. Like, he's busted out of prison at one point. And then he spends the rest of the film making out with Joan Byers. And Joan Byers appears throughout this film, sometimes inexplicably affecting a French accent. And I think she's supposed to mirror a character from... <laughs> oh, God. And then at one point, she, by the end, she just drops the accent. There's this really strange scene towards the end in which 
whatever character Baez is supposed to be, goes and confronts Ronaldo and Clara, played by Dylan and his ex-wife, Sarah. Um, and he also did date Joan Baez in the 60s. Is that why she's in Don't Look Back? I mean, no. Well, I mean, they were both contemporaries, but they did have an on-again, off-again relationship. You know, I actually like... Uh... <laughs> Uh, a Joan Baez song so I like her more than I like Dylan which song? Uh, is the song that she did the lyrics for with an idiom more connated to the you know the music bits oh yeah okay called uh, Here's to You interesting it's a good song so there's this weird scene in which Dylan is like hanging out in this little room with his then wife although they were possibly divorced at this point I'm not sure they were certainly going through a, a breakup And then Bias comes in playing this woman who is like confronting Dylan about, you know, are you going to go with her or go with me? And it's just weird that Dylan would orchestrate this scene. Um, So this film probably probably has the best uh, acting of Dylan's career, which Mm -hmm. isn't much of a qualification. It's a lot of it seems improvised. Um, and sometimes it's not clear if, if it's just been documented or how much it's been staged and that sort of stuff. But I kind of like that. And at points, Joan Baez just seems like she's genuinely making fun of Bob Dylan and it's kind of enjoyable. I think it'd be torture for a lot of people and I would <laughs> absolutely not recommend it to anyone who had no affinity for Bob Dylan. I'm, I'm not going to watch it. But I think you should watch it in full. <laughs> in one sitting. You know what's weird, right? Uh-huh. I don't know where they've got the print from. It was obviously never released once it was pulled from the theatres. It was never, like, re-released on any uh, media format. But whoever uploaded it to YouTube, it baffles me what process uh, it went through. It looks like videotape, right, of some description. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, originally on, like, uh, 16mm or something. But it looks like a videotape transfer and then onto YouTube. But somehow the surface of the screen feels like it's moving. Right. Oh, really strange. So it looks okay, like most of the time. Oh my God. It looks normal. But it's like it's flapping in the breeze, right? It's like it's projected on a sheet that's, that's, that's being manipulated by the elements. That's so bizarre. So when someone's like really close to the camera, it looks like one of those trademark Spike Lee shots in which the camera is mounted to the person. Like the dolly shots? Yeah, because somehow there's this weird link between the the movement of the sheet and and the person's face. So this is a surreal effect of this YouTube upload, which I initially thought was intentional because the credits like moved in alignment with the microphone and the rest of the image looked like it didn't move. It was just really strange. Like if you just watch the first like two seconds of it, you see that. Maybe Maybe I'll look at that. Um, and the first bit is kind of great because it's him performing uh, a song called When I Paint My Masterpiece. And he's wearing this really creepy plastic mask on stage, which is like a transparent mask. And it looks kind of like a horror movie character or something. That's bizarre. That's kind of the best bit of the film, <laughs> really. <laughs> so just like, just like uh, Don't Look Back, the best bit is in the uh, first minute. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, the iconic openings. Uh, okay, so I guess let's transition to my least favorite film of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know that smoking Ain't me bad for your health Don't you know that smoking Ain't me bad for your health You commit treason against your own self. 
for whatever reason, Dylan decides, I guess in the early 2000s, that he wants to make a film. Yeah, but no, no, no let's, let's set this up. Let's say uh, a good, I don't know, 30 years without a desire to contribute anything to the cinema. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly he's like, you know, I'm ready to make my masterpiece. <laughs> so he compiles what I can only imagine is a uh, amazing script. <laughs> I can only see was a bunch of rejected SNL sketches. <laughs> so he compiled this this tome of incoherent notes, faxed it to Larry Charles. At that point, probably most known as a writer on the first, I think, four or five seasons of Seinfeld, mm. and not much else. <laughs> so he certainly hadn't directed a film at this point. And I'm not aware if he'd done any directing work whatsoever, in fact. So why on earth Dylan chose him to be the director of this film is beyond <laughs> so me. Funny. And he can really tell because this movie is it's like, it's poorly directed. I mean, you could, you could say in one sense it's appropriately directed. <laughs> and that it's as bad <laughs> as the script. He gave, he gave the material what it deserved. <laughs> God, I, it was like hard to tell what was happening in a lot of the shots. So Larry Charles, presumably something of a Dylan fan himself, agrees um ends up co-writing the final screenplay with dylan and they're both credited under the pseudonyms sergey petrov and renee fontaine did you wait this is a quick quick wary charles aside yeah did you know that his his third film with that was a uh, bill uh, mayer's religious yes religious <laughs> a, a unwatchable movie i have actually watched that unwatchable movie i have too it's terrible. It was unwatchable, I guess. But he's only directed terrible movies. And Marston Anonymous. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I, I actually, I want to say the movie most recently made where Nicolas Cage uh, thinks he's being talked to by God to go find a solid one. Which doesn't sound like good, but it sounds like something I want to watch. You know what I mean? Mm. Anyway, go ahead. Keep on going. Keep on setting it up. So this film strangely was funded by the bbc (laughs) for no reason (laughs) i don't know why so so british taxpayers money went into this movie (laughs) yes (laughs) and it took a respectable half a million dollars at the box office come on that's nothing to sneeze at (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) i mean it looks like it was made for about five dollars so i'm i'm sure it was made for more than half a million but yeah Oh, of course. You presume presuming the cast was like, oh yeah, I'll just work for nothing. Yeah, they to, all worked to sign them or whatever for scale or less. I think just to obviously be in a Bob Dylan film or just stand around Bob Dylan. Yeah, just bask in his aura <laughs> and spout garbage. So anyway, so this this film happened one way or another, <laughs> and I'll try and explain the story to some extent. <laughs> in as much as there is a story so the film is set in some dystopian future i couldn't tell i i guess it was supposed to be america right yeah but i think it's deliberately it, it does not um attempt to nail it down to a particular location well I, I mean it's supposed to be like oh it's a fusion of all these cultures into one you know sort of thing right yeah this, this future dystopian society led by a weird faux Spanish dictatorship. Yeah, like, so you know, it looked a little looked a little Stalinish too. But uh, I have to say, before we get into this, I thought this movie was like kind of racist. I, th- I think there's some problems, but what do you mean? 
and the way that it signified, oh, things are going wrong in this dystopian future, just like black people are in power. It seemed a little, little troubling. It's all like I feel like you can edit this footage and make a national socialist uh, documentary. Or it looks like a lot of the uh, ads that uh, people used to support um, Brexit, you know? <laughs> but in, in one sense, you could interpret this depiction of the future as like a post-Trump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a very prescient film, you know? Oh, of course. It'll be like a, a foundational text for the revolution. So it's set in this future dictatorship society it's not really specified and it borrows elements from various past historical um, milieus like south american uh, dictatorships and stuff like that and for some reason there's going to be a concert <laughs> a bit of it there's going to be some sort of benefit concert who knows what it is they can't really get any performers bruce springsteen and um paul mccartney won't be able to do it so they decide to get an iconic rock legend named Jack Fate to perform instead. And Jack Fate is, is played by, of course, Bob Dylan. And the rest of the film is kind of the machinations behind the scenes of this forthcoming concert. And it's just a bunch of actors acting around Bob Dylan's impassive face, essentially. Yeah. There's not much more to the plot yeah. than that. You could call the film elusive. As in it eludes any positive qualities. Yeah, definitely. Now, what I'll say about it is it's unquestionably awful. As a film, um, it lacks almost any merit. (laughs) That is 100% true. But as a Dylan fan, which has been established... I'm glad this thing exists. Uh-huh. And um, re-watching it last night, although not completely an enjoyable experience, <laughs> in the traditional sense, <laughs> I will still say that I enjoyed myself. Why? At least in parts. Partly because I was drinking a glass of cheap sherry, which helped it go down. I was completely sober. But also... There's a perverse fascination in watching relatively renowned actors <laughs> embarrass themselves. Yes. <laughs> and I really enjoyed the screenplay. Like all the lines are, are, are amusing, usually unintentionally amusing. Granted, I I wrote some of them down. Uh, good, I did too. Like I want to hear, I want to hear some lines. Give us some lines. I was going to talk about a couple of the sequences because there's like nothing to this movie. Like I don't know. It's Bob, Bob Dylan essentially plays himself, right? He's been released from prison. There's a benefit concert that's been given by John Goodman, who's like this executive or some shit. I think you mean Uncle Sweetheart. Shut up. I do not mean that. <laughs> God, I love John Goodman, too. He's such an amazing actor. Would you say this is his best role? <laughs> oh, yeah, by far. Oh, my God, he's so terrible. Anyway, there's just some random some selected dialogue, right? There's one bit where they're ranting about, like, seeds of hope or some shit, right? And then Jessica Lange, who also plays a, uh, a executive, says, uh, seeds won't grow if you plant them on the carpet, which is great. Yep. Good line. Very true. <laughs> uh, here's another one that's given by Owen Wilson, who plays kind of like a, a disciple. <laughs> I love Owen Wilson in this so much. <laughs> He's so bad. 
Um, this is this has been my favorite line of the entire entire movie. So Luke I, yeah. Wilson, Luke Wilson, yeah, Luke Wilson. Sorry. And, uh, and and before you say his line, can uh, you tell me what his name is. I don't remember. Come on, man, Bobby Cupid. How could you? Oh God. I mean, in fairness to myself, they they don't tell you half the names of the characters in the movie. No, but they do say. <laughs> I, I did note Bobby Cupid when it was. Like, <laughs> uh, anyway. This is my favorite line of the entire movie, <laughs> just because it doesn't, make, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Like, I, I defy you to make sense of this line, okay? <laughs> You're like a door-to-door encyclopedia salesman. You're a traitor to your own self. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that still makes me happy. <laughs> There's so many lines like that that made me really happy. Every line really is like that. <laughs> and then, um... <laughs> another, another one of my favorites, which is presented as a joke. This is another oh, uh, Luke Wilson classic. Okay, you ready? <laughs> what did the monkey say to the leopard at the card game? I thought you were a cheetah. I, what? Okay, some good stuff. And there's the whole like monologue that Val Kilmer gives. That's when he says the uh, eponymous line, "Master than anonymous." You know what, Hugh? Uh... I think uh, any old crack of the concrete is more beautiful than any human being. So come on, like, you've already demonstrated that there were elements of this that brought you joy. <laughs> Don't deny it. Those, those lines are an exception, though. A lot of it I thought was annoying. <laughs> and there's that scene in which um, the guy who works for whatever press um, employs Jeff Bridges. And uh, because, you know, because it's a dystopian future, everyone's a hard-drinking guy. Um, so Jeff Bridges plays the character Tom Friend, and uh, he asks the newspaper guy, "Hey, what are you drinking?" And the guy goes, "What am I drinking? I'm drinking my life away." What is that? <laughs> Come on, that's a good line. Come on, man. See, I'm laughing at it now, but when I was watching the movie, it was was intolerable thing. <laughs> it's so much fun. This movie, it's so much fun. Keep on going. There's Christian Slater about uh, race relations in which he goes, I'm sick of all this ethnic stuff. There's only two races, <laughs> workers and bosses. What's funny is that some Marxists actually believe that. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, and, and Chris Penn, which is one of his final performances before he died. Are you saying there's some sort of cause and effect? <laughs> I think Bob Dylan murdered him. Or he was just so ashamed when he saw the final <laughs> film. We can't forget about the best part of the entire movie, which is, uh, of course, Ed Harris in blackface for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> so he seems to be uh, playing a ghost of a Al Jolson-like performer. Yes. Who appears to Jack Fate on a backstage stairwell and then vanishes and turns into an actual black person. <laughs> Did you notice that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not racist at all. Allow me to, uh, I would, I would, I wanted to read a little bit from, uh, Roger Ebert's review of this movie, okay? I don't, I'm not the biggest Ebert fan. Hmm. I'll say. He's a, he's a fine reviewer. Guess who else reviewed it? Uh, y- y- you, you. <laughs> oh, no. God. No. Ayo! <laughs> You're finally working in your bit to this podcast. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, let me do this bit, Roger Ebert <laughs> review first. And then I want you to continue to read your, your dialogue, which is, um, <clears throat> Bob Dylan idolatry is one of the the enduring secular religions of our day. Those who worship him are inexhaustible in their fervor, and that every enigmatic syllable of the great poet is cherished and analyzed as if somehow he conceals profound truths in his lyrics. And if we could only decrypt them, they would be the solution to, I don't know, maybe everything. 
Which is like really vicious, but <laughs> kind of how I felt watching this movie. I don't agree with that per se. I think there's there's I think there's some idiots who might think that, but I'd say the bulk of Bob Dylan's fan take the you know chaff with the whatever because you have to because he's he's done a lot of questionable things and he's been around forever. Yeah, I just I, this movie is just like so terrible. So there are a couple of moments that almost work. I will say in this film. After Jack Fate is released from his prison, he walks out and he's around a dilapidated building covered in colorful graffiti. And the soundtrack is playing a Latin hip hop version of Like a Rolling Stone. And those 10 seconds are probably the, the high point of the film. And then he, he talks to Cheech of Cheech and Chong about catching a bus. Okay, what was your least favorite part? the rest of the (laughs) (laughs) but um and there's a moment in which jeff bridges journalist character tom friend is sort of harassing bob dylan oh i guess we should talk about this his continued hatred of the press he does it oh he's like talking about it just nods it's like (laughs) yeah that's what i enjoyed so he's he's challenging dylan about Stuff that doesn't make any sense. And he's just like talking about Frank Zappa and Jimi Hendrix and stuff. You just say, it seems like it was improvised. Like that's the feeling that you get. It's just like, okay, Jeff Bridges, just say whatever. Um, and, but there's, there's a scene in which the camera is sort of circling around Dylan with Jeff Bridges as he's ranting at Dylan. And that kind of becomes enjoyable and almost becomes a, a normal cinematic scene. I kind of, I kind of liked it in that. Uh, it, 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 I like to see the person who's responsible for this movie get ranted at. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I thought it was, like, compelling. Dude, I love the scene when, so he later meets up with Angela Bassett. And it's implied, obviously, they've had some romantic history. Yeah. And she goes to, like, kiss him, and he doesn't move his face whatsoever. And she just ends up, like, kissing this, like, statue. Uh, His expression changes not one iota. He he is as expressive as a later-day Seagal is, I would say. That's that's the sort of vibe I got from Dylan in this movie. It's it's weird to me, like, how bad he is as a screen performer. I mean, it shouldn't be weird, because it is a completely different ballgame. But... He's a compelling, like, presence, stage yeah, presence. sure. Uh, and, he's, and he's compelling, just documented in um, Don't Look Back. Like, there's charisma yeah. and there's a yeah. magnetism about him, which is undeniable whether you like him or not. But I feel like most, I feel like most musicians are pretty terrible actors. I'm trying to think of, is there, like, Bowie is the one who's not bad. But Dylan is kind of uniquely terrible, and then he gives nothing. Like, he ref- <laughs> he's just, but I mean, how much do you think that was intentional just to be terrible? That's how he always is, though. So what's funny to me is the idea of how that would have worked for the person directing it, like Larry Charles. Like, uh, yeah, that was great, Bob. Like, <laughs> like, you really have to struggle to work around his limitations of an actor. And you can hear some of some of his lines had to be overdubbed in later over footage that doesn't feature his mouth and stuff like that. It's funny. <laughs> it's great. And you can see the same things happen a, a, again, um, even when he's he's doing something comparatively less demanding, like a music video. It's clear that Nash Edgerton, who directed his last few uh, notable video clips, oh, that music that one music video is terrible. It's clear that he had to struggle to to get Dylan to even mime the songs correctly, and he usually works around it by 
in some cases, just not bothering to get Dylan to mime a song. Um, so there's a clip for Duquesne Whistle, uh-huh. one of his later records, in which, again, because it's Nash Edgerton, it's mostly an excuse to do violent stunts. <laughs> <laughs> that man loves his stunts. So there's like this whole separate story with, with violent stunts. And then there's also just random clips of Dylan just walking down the street. And it kind of works that way. I mean, it's, it's not a great clip, honestly. But the clip for Must Be Santa, which I think is their best collaboration, is funny. Because oh, that it, clip is so terrible. The Must Be Santa one is good. I like that a lot. Is that the one um, that I watched with the... No, 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 no. Oh. The, the Must Be Santa one is Bob Dylan dressed up as Santa Claus singing a Christmas song. <laughs> oh, that's so um, terrible. And it's just like a party, but he needs Bob Dylan to like mime certain sections of the song. So the camera has to look at him for a second. Bob Dylan like barely manages to get his mouth around it in time. And then he pans the camera away to some actors, pans back for a little bit more of Bob, pans away again. It's really funny. It's clear that they have to like work around that limitation. That sounds funny. But yeah. He's 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 a he's a legitimate non-present. He's an atrocious actor. <laughs> yeah, he's terrible. But there is a curious enjoyment to be extracted from the scenes, for example, in this film, in which he doesn't have to say anything. He just has to sit there while someone like uh, Giovanni Ribisi <laughs> rants to him, <laughs> and he just has to look over at him occasionally. But that's that's like every scene, though. <laughs> it is every scene. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> what is wrong it's with so you? Much fun. Just watching Bob Dylan sitting there, like, what's, what's he thinking about now? Um, and then um, Giovanni <laughs> goes out and gets shot by the revolutionaries. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh, so good, so good. I, I honestly, what, what do you think motivated him to make this? Like, I cannot imagine. He's always been interested in in cinema. Like, I know that Shoot the Piano Player was one of his favorite films, and he did obviously have a, a, a desire to make a, a great film and attempted that once with Ronaldo and Clara. That was obviously a disaster. So he waited. <laughs> he waited like twenty five years and then gave it another shot. It was his masterpiece. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and it, it came. Uh, it was on the uh, top ten list from uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, what do you think of Jonathan Rosenbaum? Because I was like, how did you put that in his top ten? I mean, I like some of his reviews. So there you go. You should change your opinion about the film. I guess so. <laughs> or did you opinion about fucking uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum? You know what What would have been great, right? If this f- film happened um, in the 60s or 70s with, you know, pretentious French New Wave director or something at the head. Oh, making like his American debut. Like, Godard had made this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that would have been hilarious. Like, I think it would, uh, it would have been a better film, obviously, if a proper director did it. But there's something about it that maybe could have even worked. Um, obviously, if you took away all the dialogue... <laughs> <laughs> and the words and, and the plot and, 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 and remove the movie. <laughs> wow, this this selection of movies that uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum did for 2003 is all bad. Twenty fifth hour, down with love. Yeah, sure. In the mirror of Maya Duren. Sure, whatever. Pistol Opera. That's the remake of a uh, braided kill. Hmm. The School of Rock. It's not bad. I, don't know. Uh, I think that's the best Richard Linklater film I've seen, honestly. Yeah, but the best movie, the best movie of the year, I'd say, Cold Mountain. That's what that. That's what I really start like shaking my head. Cold Mountain, featuring original songs by Bob Dylan on the soundtrack. Really? Maybe he's just a Bob Dylan junkie. I guess so. And then uh, the Shape of Things is awful. By Neil Boot. Take my word for it. 
Let me just find a, a line from A.O. Scott's review. Oh, God. What if I don't do it? When are you going to do that? I'll d I'll, I'm going to do it myself. Fine. If you don't do it. Oh, go ahead. All right, you ready? Yep, yep. The intent seems to have been to capture the feeling of one of Mr. Dillon's surreal shaggy dog ballads on celluloid. Not to be confused with cellulose. Not an especially good idea, perhaps, but certainly an interesting one. Is that it? Hey -o. Oh man. Are you happy? Filmed in picturesque rundown no, 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 no more. Los Angeles. No the more. movie fuses Coen Brothers Americana with Gabriel Garcia, Garcia Marquez magic realism. Ew. Alright. Well, should we move on? You may encounter people who tell you it's a stone masterpiece. The thing to do is nod politely. They mean no harm. For all I know, they may be right. Ayo! Are we are we done? Yeah, we're done. Well, uh, in conclusion, I hate Bob Dylan. <laughs> oh, friend. Oh.